And we are going to look at really quite an epic story in the Bible. Turn with me to Genesis 37. While you're turning to Genesis 37, just a reminder about Steadfast. Last year we had 60 volunteers. This year we have 130. Um, That tells you kind of the difference. We've already shattered our old uh, registration record. So um, uh, be in prayer for that time. There will be many there who need to hear the word of God. Genesis 37. The prophet Jeremiah asked a question which is repeated in various forms all over the Bible. It's a question about injustice that not only does the Bible ask, but you've probably asked as well. Jeremiah 12, verse 1 says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. And here are the questions. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? It's a question about injustice. And certainly one of the greatest instances of injustice, of unfair treatment in all of the Bible, is that of a young man named Joseph. Now, Joseph is important enough to the story of Genesis that 25% of the book is devoted to him. And Joseph is the subject tonight of our series on waiting on the Lord, strength in the desert, having spiritual stamina when you're in a period of waiting, maybe in a lifetime of waiting, waiting for the Lord to work and to move. And each person we've been examining gives us a lesson on waiting on the Lord. And tonight, if Joseph were here among us and we invited him up to the platform to say, what lesson would you teach us? His lesson would be, be a blessing now. Be a blessing now. While you're waiting on the Lord, be a joy, be a treasure, be a delight to those around you. And be useful in whatever capacity you might find yourself. And what was Joseph waiting for? There are very few times where you can say this is literal, but literally he was waiting for his dreams to come true. That's what he was waiting for. At the age of 17, Joseph was the 11th of 12 sons of Jacob. They were nomadic shepherds in the land of Canaan. Joseph was the firstborn of the love of Jacob's life, Rachel, but his Jacob's other wife, Leah, and his maidservants had given Jacob ten sons before Joseph. There are various options for determining the timeline of Jacob's life, but most chronologies agree that Jacob was about 90 years old when Joseph was born. And so Joseph was very special to Jacob. Genesis 37, verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. The the robe or the coat of many colors is a traditional translation that's based really more on the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament than the actual Hebrew text. There's very good evidence that it actually means a long sleeved robe or an ornamented robe. In any case, whatever it is, it's a source of envy for the older sons. But it's not likely that they envied the robe just because of of style concerns or because he had one and they didn't. It was symbolic. There were two things that this robe symbolized that infuriated his older brothers. First of all, it was a symbol that Joseph was the favorite. Now, remember, in our culture, we have learned, we've been taught to try really hard not to show favorites among our children because we understand how destructive that can be to other kids. But this is a different time. This is a different era completely. And remember, Jacob himself is a twin who was the not favorite twin of his father Isaac. 
And so he understands this. So it really wasn't uncommon to be open about who your favorite kid was. So the the second symbol which infuriated them, though, about this robe is that verse 2 said that Joseph brought a bad report concerning his brothers, how they were managing the flocks. In, In the ancient Near East, you didn't necessarily shepherd your flocks right in front of your tent. The the shepherds might be a couple of days' journey away to find good pasture land. And so Joseph has come home telling dad that his other sons are fooling around in some fashion. In fact, later on in verse 13, Jacob again sends Joseph to check on his brothers. So it seems that the robe not only was a symbol of the love of Jacob, it was a symbol of authority that was given to him that he was responsible for the management of the other brothers. I don't know about you, but at my age, having a 17-year-old boss might not go over too well. But before this, before he goes back to them, Joseph has a dream. Chapter 37, verse 5, Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it, and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then in verses, uh, in, in the following verses, he has a similar dream, which means the same thing. So when Jacob sent Joseph to check up on the brothers, very sadly, they plotted first to kill him. Eventually, they settled on sell, selling him into slavery. They put Joseph in an empty cistern, a water pit that was dug out of the rock while they decided his fate. Later on in Genesis 42, the text records that Joseph had begged them for mercy, that he had pled his case to them, but they didn't listen. They sold him to Ishmaelite slave traders from the country of Midian. These would be distant relatives, by the way, people they're related to, who took Joseph to Egypt to offer him for sale as a slave. Egypt didn't really have a a slave-selling center. Uh, It was all direct commerce that a slave trader would sell a slave directly to um, a a buyer. Then they very sadly took Joseph's robe, the special robe given to him by his father. They dipped it in goat's blood, and they told Jacob that Joseph had must have been torn to pieces by a wild animal. And so Joseph is sold in Egypt to Potiphar, to the captain of the Pharaoh's guard. And we pick up the story in chapter 39, verse 2. Chapter 39, verse 2, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. The Lord made Joseph essentially the steward of Potiphar's household, the one managing the finances, his fields, the other slaves, such that, that the text says that Potiphar didn't worry about anything except the food he ate. Everything was turned over to Joseph. And the Lord blessed Potiphar because of Joseph. And you know the story. Joseph was handsome, and Potiphar's wife daily tried to seduce him into violating Potiphar's trust in him. But Joseph was a young man of integrity. He refused. He called Potiphar his master, the one who had trusted him. And he said in verse 9, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And what does this tell us about Joseph? It tells us that he had a genuine, internal, saving faith in God. 
He was aware that he had the potential to sin, and he was aware that out of his love for God, he wanted to resist sin. He wanted to live in obedience to the Lord. But Potiphar's wife, the wicked woman that she was, one day she grabbed Joseph by his garment. His garment was something special he would have worn as a, as a cloak that identified him as the head steward of the household, that he's the guy in charge to try to seduce him. And Joseph runs away, and she holds on to the garment. It's left behind in her hand. And so she screams, and the other men of the household, the other slaves come running, and she accuses Joseph not only to them, but then to her husband of trying to force himself on her And that brings us to the main text I'd like to focus upon this evening, chapter 39, verse 19. And the scene we come to is Potiphar's wife speaking to her husband. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So Joseph had gone from the head shepherd of a, of a growing shepherding empire to a slave and now to a prisoner. So what can we learn from Joseph the prisoner about having strength in the desert while you're waiting on the Lord? Well, while you're waiting, it can be very tempting to have such an eye on a future fantasy fulfillment of all your dreams and all your hopes that you become less and less useful, less and less helpful. You're so focused on the future that you forget that you're, you're in the now. And so Joseph's lesson for us tonight while you wait is to be a blessing now. And so using Joseph as a model, very simply, I want to give you three ways to be a blessing now. Three ways to be a blessing now. First of all, be thankful since it could be worse. Be thankful since it could be worse. Now, I need to take some time to help you understand the Egyptian legal system because all we're told in verse 20 is that Joseph was put into the king's prison. It's a rare word which means the roundhouse or the fortress. But I think some background will help you understand that Joseph could have had it much worse than what's happening to him. The Egyptian justice system, it did change over time, and we're talking about a, we're talking about a, a, a culture that went for centuries and centuries But they did have some principles that essentially remained static, remained the same all throughout their history. Their justice system was based on what they called the principle of ma'at, that is, harmony. That the goal of life was to be at peace with yourself, at peace with your community, at peace with the gods. And you were to do this by living a life of consideration and thoughtfulness and balance. And so it it was really a well-aimed justice system. And the law was seen as a way to encourage people to live this life of balance. The law was very impatient with those who didn't want to live in consideration with their neighbors. It was believed that adhering to the laws of the land was beneficial to everyone, so a lawbreaker was seen as somebody who who hurt the whole community. Those who chose to transgress the law were punished severely. Now, they had a radical difference in their justice system from ours in in the United States. Unlike our justice system, an accused person in Egypt was considered guilty 
until proven innocent. Now, because of this, obviously there could be some problems with this, witnesses would be called forward and they would be asked the question, do you want to bear witness against this person? And if if somebody said, yes, I do, then they would take that witness and beat him half to death. And then they would say, do you still want to bear witness against this person? And if it was a false witness, sometimes they would say, you know what, I'm not interested anymore. I think we're just going to say he's fine. But if there was true guilt involved here, they would say, yes, I'll take the beating because this is important. But even if you were found innocent of whatever crime you were accused of, your name was kept on record as having been a suspect. You were always, you would always have a record, even if you were found innocent. Their court system was well-developed. It was considered one of the oldest, sophisticated legal systems in ancient history. The, the top of the justice system was the pharaoh, was the king. The second, and really the practical administrator of justice, was the vizier, the, the prime minister. And under the vizier, was there were appointed lower court judges, lower court systems, all based in, in geographic location. There was a hierarchy at the local, the regional, and the national level, very similar to our justice system, actually. Now, the legal system certainly had major flaws like ours, not the least of which was the fact that judges were often priests who more often than not appealed to their gods as opposed to the evidence to determine guilt or innocence of somebody who's on trial. The common legal disputes that you would see on a daily basis on the docket were were land and water rights, ownership of livestock, hereditary job or title rights, disputes over property after the death of the, the head of a family. There were lots of property and money issues happening. Serious crimes such as rape, murder, or large-scale theft, these were punishable by death or by disfigurement. Men who were convicted of rape were castrated and they were maimed, and that's if they weren't executed. Murderers were often beaten and then fed to crocodiles or burned to death. And so you didn't want to be found guilty of those major crimes. The nuclear family in Egypt was considered the basis for a healthy society. And so family disputes were often taken to court, often settled in court and taken very, very seriously. Lawsuits were filed for domestic abuse, for divorce, for marital infidelity and adultery. And adultery was considered an extremely serious offense. If the offended spouse wanted to make it serious, this could become a big deal. Both the husband and the wife could take each other to court for infidelity. They had the option to simply forgive one another. But if they chose to take this to court, a wife being found as unfaithful could be punished by divorce, which means the loss of all financial support for the rest of her life. She could be punished by the amputation of her nose or even by the death penalty by burning alive. A husband wouldn't face the death penalty per se, but he could be sentenced to up to a thousand blows, which he probably wasn't going to survive. So in essence, it it was a death penalty. But not only were the witnesses often beaten to make sure that they were telling the truth, a false witness who purposefully and knowingly lied to the court could expect severe punishment that began at amputation and ended at drowning, depending on how badly they had lied. Now, Joseph is a slave, and there were several different strata or levels of slavery in ancient Egypt. Some slaves had more rights and privileges than others. Some slaves were, uh, were property, property owners, homeowners. They were really a lot more like employees than slaves, all the way down to the lowest strata, who were people basically treated as prisoners of war. 
There's also evidence, though, that slaves were treated essentially pretty much equally in the Egyptian justice system, that they were treated like citizens. They were still slaves. They didn't have the option to purchase their freedom, but they did find themselves entering into the Egyptian legal system similarly to how a a citizen would be. So Joseph now has found himself in the nation's legal system, but it was also possible for a prisoner, since they were presumed guilty first, it was possible for a prisoner just to be simply forgotten about. That, that much like our system today, they didn't really have a system where you could bail them out. You, you just were thrown in jail, and if you ever came to trial, maybe you had a chance, and sometimes you just never came to trial. You just were left there. Now, what does all this have to do with Joseph and Potiphar and Potiphar's wife? Well, there's some huge implications for this that I think really help us understand the text here in the story. First of all, Adultery and rape were both considered capital offenses, which could end up resulting in the death penalty or for a woman at least disfiguring for her. Second thing to remember is that being a knowing false witness against an innocent person carried the, the, the weight of the death penalty at the most and amputation at the least. So to purposefully lie about somebody to get them convicted of a crime was punishable by death. And then third, if Joseph was presumed guilty of rape, which could carry an immediate death sentence or or maiming, this puts us in an interesting spot here. Why is Joseph in prison instead of dead or maimed? Why is that? Well, because Potiphar is in a horrible spot. Listen to the, the situation he's in. Potiphar's wife has had, she has many servants in the home. She was very openly daily approaching Joseph to be unfaithful with him. And almost certainly this was no secret from the household staff. Verse 10 says that, that, that this happened continually. And so when Potiphar's wife made her accusation, Joseph would almost certainly have defended himself. He certainly defended himself when he was in the pit, uh, captured by his brothers. But verse 19 says Potiphar's anger was kindled but it doesn't say against whom. doesn't say who he's mad at. Because if Potiphar 100% believed his wife, Joseph wouldn't be thrown in prison. He'd be tried or maimed, or in the case of a slave, more likely just executed immediately. But he wasn't. Joseph was simply put into prison and put into the nicest prison, the king's prison. Why is this? Well, if Potiphar takes this to court and it comes out that his wife has falsely accused Joseph, then his wife could be maimed or drowned for being a false witness. But on the other hand, if he just tells his wife, I don't believe you, then it could make him look like his wife is having an affair on the side and that he's not doing anything about it. This is not something that the captain of the king's guard wants to do. He cannot let it get out that his wife is running over him. That can't happen. So it seems the most likely that Potiphar suspected that his wife was actually the truly unfaithful one and that by putting Joseph in prison yet not prosecuting him, he could save his wife's life, he could save his own reputation, and he could save Joseph's life even though he would be imprisoned indefinitely. And so while Joseph being thrown into prison was terrible, it could have been worse. He could have been maimed, more likely he would have just had his life ended by some horrible execution, being burned to death or being beaten and then thrown to the crocodiles, and the life of Joseph is snuffed out. I think it's very, 
very tempting when we're waiting on the Lord to believe that he is leaning on you mercilessly, that he's just putting pressure on you and, and, and almost like, like torturing you. But I would assert that if you would take the time, as I'm sure Joseph did, he knew the Egyptian legal system, that if we took the time to count all the ways that God is being kind and gracious and generous, even while you're waiting, I think you'll see that the all-powerful God that we serve and that we love never puts his children in a place of hardship where there is literally nothing to be thankful for. He never does that. When the Israelites were eating manna day after day and grumbled that they wanted meat, you remember the story, the Lord gave them meat, but then while they were still chewing it, many of them got sick and died for their complaining spirit. What's the lesson for them? Be thankful since it could be worse. I imagine that after that little lesson, an Israelite father praying before a meal of manna would, would extol the virtues of manna to God and say, thank you for the fried version and the baked version and the raw version. We're just thankful for this because we don't want to die. Listen, God loves you. He disciplines those whom he loves, which is every believer in Christ. But don't test him by griping as if you're in the worst possible situation. God is very good at proving you wrong. He can make it worse. He can make it worse. So instead, determine to demonstrate the sweet aroma of thankfulness and gratitude, of lack of complaining, because when you have a, a sour and an ungrateful attitude, it burdens everyone around you. Have you ever been around someone for 30 seconds that just makes you suicidal just because they open their mouth? Like, wow, you just complained me into a major depression right here and now. Be a blessing now by being thankful since it could be worse. Sometimes when somebody speaks to me and they, all they can do is have a complaining spirit, I'll give them the assignment. At the end of every day, you will list every blessing that you've had. That has a monumental impact on our hearts. Joseph was a smart man and almost certainly knew that he should have gotten the death penalty, but he was spared and his life continued. There's a second way to be a blessing now. Ask for the Lord's favor since this is where he has you. Ask for the Lord's favor, since this is where he has you. Far from ruling over his brothers as his boyhood dream had revealed to him, Joseph now finds himself in an Egyptian prison, his family literally not knowing where he was, and his father not even knowing that he's alive still. Now, to better understand the situation Joseph is in, we need to take a little trip back in time to an Egyptian prison. Now, some think that this prison was connected directly to Potiphar's house, maybe a dungeon underneath it because it's called the king's prison. But technically, all the prisons in Egypt were the king's prison. But this is a particular prison where special prisoners were kept. Interestingly, in the ancient world, prisons were actually quite rare. Usually, punishment was immediate. That if the judge said, you're guilty, off with his head, it was rolling in the dirt in about a minute. And we're just done with it. You, most cultures had a very efficient justice system, maybe not completely just, but efficient. And so whatever your punishment was, death penalty, a fine, a beating, mutilation, or some other unpleasant fate, it just happened to you right then. But Egypt was one of the few nations that had prisons. They had a prison system. Being a prisoner of the king meant being treated anywhere from fairly special all the way down to extremely poorly. Archaeology has shown kings of Egypt doing all sorts of things to prisoners. Amenhotep II, who is incidentally the most likely pharaoh of the Exodus, 
he's shown in a in a picture in a in a in a um, drawing of having prisoners bound and placed at his feet to act as his footstool. Then they stay there all day while he rests his feet on them. How was Joseph treated? We know he was treated poorly. Psalm 105 verse 18 says, His feet were hurt with feathers. His neck was put in a collar of iron. In 1972, an Egyptologist by the name of W.C. Hayes, he translated and published his discovery of an Egyptian papyrus, which describes at length Egyptian prisons. A prison was called just the place of confinement, and it was divided into two sections. There was, first of all, the, a cell-like, a cell block, very similar to our modern prisons, where individual prisoners were kept. And then on the other side, there were barracks where larger numbers of prisoners were kept as forced laborers for the king. Some in the cell block were serving a specific sentence for a crime that they had, they had been found guilty of. Others were awaiting the decision on whether they would be executed or not while an investigation was taking place. In the case of the king's prison... You know that the baker and the cupbearer of chapter 40 were likely accused of a plot against the king, so they're there in the same place. But the the king's prison that's spoken of here probably is not connected right to Potiphar's house or even to the palace. It's almost certainly at at the city of Thebes, modern-day Luxor, 400 miles south of Cairo. All of the king's key royal officials, and you could, you could come under his banishment at any time, that's where they were taken. But I want you to see how the text is arranged in verses 21 through 23. There's a very clear emphasis here. Verse 21, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And in verse 22, As a result, Joseph has earned great trust, great favor of the prison warden, And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. And then verse 23, again, the Lord has shown his steadfast love and favor to Joseph. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. What is this? This is a classic ABA pattern to emphasize the most important element. The Lord shows steadfast love. Joseph is given favor and position. Why? Because the Lord shows steadfast favor and love. That's what we're meant to take from this text. And it really shouldn't surprise us if you did a quick survey of chapter 39, verses 2 through 5, which describes Joseph's position in Potiphar's house. The same pattern is there. God gave favor. As a result, Joseph is blessed. Why? Because God gave favor. By the way, although Joseph was first unjustly sold as a slave, what did he call Potiphar? Chapter 8 says he called him master, that he was respectful and he was submissive. Now, you might say, who cares if God showed Joseph favor while he's in prison? So he gets to be the head schmuck. I mean, is that basically what we're talking about here? He's the head lowest guy on the planet? The fact, say, the fact is, is that the text says twice that the Lord was with Joseph while he was in prison. What does that tell us? That tells us that's an important detail that God wants us to get. That the Lord's help and his favor is important and it's worth asking for no matter how humble your circumstances. Listen, this is a whole different way of thinking. Instead of just praying, Lord, get me out of this time of waiting. Get me out of this situation 
you can be a blessing now by praying, Lord, show me favor now. Make me useful now. Make me helpful to those who are around me. Make me somebody worth being around. God certainly doesn't do things the way you think he ought to. Wherever he was, Joseph always found himself rising to the position of second in command because of his faithfulness. And yet, look at what happened to him. First, he's second in command over a growing livestock empire. So, God demotes him to be second in command over all the slaves and household as a, of a master, as a slave himself. So, God demotes him again to be second in command over his fellow prisoners. You really can't go any lower at that point. But wherever he was, he received the Lord's favor to be useful, to be a blessing. And you could just ask a thousand different questions. You could ask the question, am I in a marriage that's less than ideal? Be a blessing now. Am I in a job that's less than ideal? Be a blessing now. Am I in a church that's less than ideal? Be a blessing now. Am I fighting an illness that's less than ideal? Be a blessing now. Am I fighting a relationship difficulty that's less than ideal? Be a blessing now. You understand how that's just the answer to every one of those questions? And how was Joseph a blessing? How did the favor he received from the Lord work itself out? Simply by using his gifts and his abilities right where he was out of love for the Lord. Out of love for the Lord. This is a guy who had managed a growing empire that would literally become a nation And now he's down to managing prisoners. The first way to be a blessing now, be thankful since it could be worse. Second, ask for the Lord's favor since this is where he has you. And the third way to be a blessing, serve those around you since this is his will. Serve those around you since this is his will. The favor the Lord extended to Joseph didn't just give him, it didn't give him special privileges or luxuries, really. He's still a prisoner. The blessing of the Lord was the chance to serve and to demonstrate what a, what a follower of Yahweh does and how a follower of God acts. Chapter 39, verse 3, Potiphar saw that the Lord was with Joseph. Chapter 39, verse 23, the prison warden saw that the Lord was with Joseph. His witness was solid. His witness was in place. It was secure. And what exactly was Joseph doing? Every prison had a warden or an overseer and a large administrative staff. Sometimes that administrative staff was taken from the prisoners themselves if they show the high trust level, including a high-level assistant, often the second-in-command, called the scribe of the prison. You have to remember that in ancient Egypt, most people couldn't read or write. That was just normal. Nobody did that, really. But the scribe of the prison had to be literate, He had to be trustworthy. He had to have a commanding presence as he was the second in command and the record keeper. The Egyptians, like our prison system, kept very detailed records. And who does it seem became the scribe of the prison, the second in command? It seems that Joseph did. He was literate. He was smart. He was a good leader. He was a good manager. He would have had to be these things to serve as the steward in Potiphar's household. And he already had several years' experience of running a complex estate So helping run a prison would probably be child's play for Joseph. So we can surmise quite easily how he attained these positions, both at Potiphar's house and in the prison. Very simply, he was trustworthy. He wasn't difficult. He was cooperative. And we noticed with Potiphar that he was loyal to those that he was under. He was loyal. In other words, this man who as a boy had aspirations to leadership 
now learn to be a servant. And generally speaking, loyal servants tend to be end up in charge of things. One thing that happened when I was a kid that has stuck out to me, and I've never forgotten this, a number of years ago, my dad was between assignments for a large missions organization that he worked for. He had worked in a support role, which was now phasing out, and he was essentially um, out of a job, although they, they wanted to have something to do with him, but they didn't know what to do with him. So he was just staying near the national headquarters back in the Midwest, just kind of waiting for what was next. He wasn't even on the payroll. He didn't technically have a job with them. So he would just go to the, the campus of the headquarters, and he would kind of wander around and see if there was something he could do. And one day he wandered there and noticed that the grounds needed tending. This is a large campus, and apparently their, their, their grounds guy wasn't able to, to keep up with it. And so my dad started mowing the lawn. He started trimming the bushes. He started asking what else needs to be done. And keep in mind, my dad was a man with multiple college degrees with, with a great deal of experience and a lot of uh, high-powered abilities. So in his overalls one day, after mowing the lawn, he was called into the president's office, and he was a little bit embarrassed being in there, and he was given the assignment to run one of their largest, most complex administrative tasks. And my dad asked, well, why me? He said, because I don't see anybody else out there mowing the lawn. It was because of his servant's heart. Now, he had a hefty, beefy resume also, but that wasn't why they took him on. I was a child when that happened, and I never forgot that. And it's probably no coincidence that when I graduated from high school, my dad gave me a book on the life of Joseph and said, you be like this guy. You know what you can't do simultaneously? You can't joyfully serve those around you and feel sorry for yourself. Those two don't like to live in the same room. So if you're joyfully serving those around you, you will not feel sorry for yourself. So Joseph's lesson to us is, be a blessing now while you wait. Be thankful, since it could be worse. Ask for the Lord's favor, since this is where he has you, and serve those around you, since this is his will. Now, I have carefully, carefully avoided moving on to what happened to Joseph beginning in chapter 40, because I don't want you to make the mistake of thinking that our lesson for tonight is, be a blessing now, and then God will elevate you to be the second most powerful person in the world. There is precisely one person in the Bible that this happened to, and it does happen to be Joseph. But the lesson, I'm waiting on the Lord, is just be a blessing now. But we do need to complete Joseph's story, I think, because it will help us see how God was working behind the scenes and and instruct us by way of reminder that when God has us in humble, waiting circumstances, there is always a bigger picture. There's always a bigger picture. Chapter 40 begins with the story of how the chief cupbearer and the chief baker of the king were accused of a crime, most likely of an assassination plot because they both had direct access to the king. They're thrown into prison where they come into contact with Joseph. Each has a dream, and Joseph, a man of God, given this prophetic ability, interpreted the dream. The cupbearer would be restored to his position, and the baker, not so much. He would be executed. In all likelihood, while they're in prison, Investigations are being completed. The cupbearer was exonerated and the baker was condemned and executed three days later, just like Joseph said would happen. Now, when Joseph gave the favorable interpretation to the cupbearer, he asked a teensy-weensy little favor. He just said, hey, can you mention me to Pharaoh when you're released? And the cupbearer did. Two years later, faithfully, he mentioned him. 
In chapter 41, Pharaoh had dreams given unbeknownst to him by God, and none of his wise men could interpret these dreams that troubled him. The chief cupbearer then remembered Joseph and told Pharaoh that the young Hebrew in prison, who's now 30 years old, had pinpointed the dream interpretations of both the cupbearer and the baker. And so Pharaoh sends for Joseph. Joseph shaved. Egyptians didn't care for facial hair. And he was given a change of clothing to come in before Pharaoh. And in came Joseph to stand before the most powerful man in the known world at the time, Sestasaurus II, who, by the way, had a son, Sestasaurus III, who was almost exactly Joseph's age. Sestasaurus II was a middle kingdom pharaoh, and he's most known for his gold and copper and amethyst mines that he opened in Nubia as far south as Sinai. Um, He was quite the architect and quite the, the civil works manager. Near his royal palace, he constructed waterworks which served an Al Fayyim lake. Uh, which was fed by the Nile and reclaimed all kinds of marsh areas. It it was, at the time, a monumental feat of civil engineering. And he built his own pyramid. And if you you think about the pyramids you know of in Egypt, the pyramid of Sestasaurus II is considered an improvement on those, an engineering marvel and a design upgrade from the Old Kingdom and the early Middle Kingdom pyramids. So Pharaoh Sestasaurus told Joseph, I've had a dream and I heard that you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer, Genesis 41, 16. And of course, the news about the dreams were that they they both meant the same thing. Seven years of plenty in Egypt, followed by seven years of famine. The famine would be severe, and Pharaoh would be wise to appoint a man to lead the way in taxing the produce of the land to save up for the seven terrible lean years. And we pick up in Genesis 41, verse 37. Genesis 41, verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as your command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Now, interestingly, Joseph is now taking the position of vizier, prime minister, who is ironically the head of the justice system also. So he goes from prisoner to head of the justice system in one fell swoop. That would have made my knees go weak. I don't know how he really dealt with that. Verse 42, Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck, and he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh even renamed Joseph Zaphoneth Paneah, which means the God speaks and he lives. It's a tribute to the true and living God. And as Joseph faithfully served Pharaoh, the rest of Genesis gives the incredibly detailed account of how how Joseph's brothers came to him for grain during the famine, and Joseph revealed himself to them after having set up a series of hardships for them to discern if they had repented, which they had. Joseph was reunited with his father, and Israel was given by the new Pharaoh, Sestasaurus III, 
the entire northern territory of Goshen for the family of 70 to settle and to be taken care of. But again, the lesson tonight is not be a blessing now and then you'll have a Disney-like ending as a result. But that background is necessary for us to see what happened as a result of God's plan for Joseph and the fact that Joseph stayed faithful to the Lord. And because of this, the Lord gave many benefits. I want to just give you a few benefits that happened with Joseph, and we're going to start small and work our way outward. The first benefit, Joseph's salvation was confirmed. His salvation was confirmed. No matter how lowly his circumstances, Joseph was concerned with honoring the Lord. A Puritan preacher once said, Joseph lost his coat, but he kept his character. And that is true. He was submissive to authority, even to his own harm. He was loyal to those around him. He was seen by those around him as a man of character. And this guy stuck it out. And in our culture now, church members are considered faithful if they'll stay in the same church for three years. Joseph blows that out of the water. He was seen by those around him as a man of character because they recognized that he served God. I think it's very interesting that both the Potiphar and the prison warden, who are confirmed polytheists, who served the gods of Egypt, they entrusted the care of their concerns to someone who trusted in Yahweh. They saw that he was different. The apostle Peter comforted the troubled and the suffering Christian. He said, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All through his demotions, demoted from here down to here down to here, Joseph stayed faithful to the Lord. This confirmed his salvation. The second benefit, Joseph's character was refined. His character was refined. He was incredibly gifted. He was even good-looking on top of that. At the age of 17, he had already been given charge of his brothers, and he had been given a dream by God that his brothers and his family would somehow bow down to him, someday bow down to him. And, and what did he do with that dream of Genesis 37? He went running to his brothers and said, Guess who's going to serve whom? Guess who's going to bow down and who's not? But 13 years of slavery and imprisonment later, when Pharaoh said, I hear that you can interpret dreams, how did Joseph handle the dreams this time? Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. His character was refined. As a third benefit, God developed in Joseph skills he would need later. When you're waiting on the Lord, have you ever thought about what you're getting good at during that time? It might be that that's precisely what the Lord is going to use. Joseph started off in charge of a growing livestock enterprise, probably too soon, couldn't handle the difficult relationship dynamics. Then, with nothing to lose, really, he faithfully served his way to leadership in Potiphar's house. And just to solidify those skills, God gave Joseph the opportunity to be just as faithful in prison. And each time, Joseph was given the duty of second-in-command, 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 which would come really in handy because he became second-in-command of the world. God developed in Joseph skills he would need later. There's a fourth benefit. When we move a little bit farther out now, God set Joseph up to rescue his own family. 
He set Joseph up to rescue his own family. Why is the detail important that Joseph was sold as a slave to a king's official, to Potiphar, who worked for the king? Because when Joseph was imprisoned, he went to the king's prison, where other king's officials would be imprisoned. And here, Joseph made friends with the chief cupbearer, who would be his inroad to meet Pharaoh and be released and put in, the place, put in place the national program that would save his own family. In fact, later, when his brothers were afraid that Joseph would retaliate and take revenge on them, he told them in Genesis 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Then he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. We move out even further. There's a fifth benefit. God set Joseph up to humble his brothers. God set Joseph up to humble his brothers. Listen, these knuckleheads who threw him into a pit are the men on whom the chosen nation of God to represent God on earth will be built. Jacob's sons would be the first heads of the clans and the tribes named after them and their repentance of the treatment of Joseph demonstrated true faith in the Lord. And ironically, Joseph's dream from the Lord as a 17-year-old did come true. Genesis 42, 6, now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. And when Joseph made a pretense of holding prisoner his youngest brother, Benjamin, born of the same mother, Rachel, Judah, now speaking for his brothers, at the end of chapter 44, he begged Joseph to imprison him instead for the sake of his father, Jacob. Judah and his brothers had been broken. They were guilty for their treatment of Joseph. In fact, earlier in chapter 42, when Joseph was putting them through all kinds of tests that before they knew who he was, here's the heart of his brothers, the new heart. They said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why distress has come upon us. What do we call that in New Testament terms? That's called repentance. And having now repented, Joseph made himself known to them. And in a great sense, at that moment, the family was spiritually purged of guilt because the brothers repented. There's a sixth benefit. God set up Joseph to grow God's chosen nation. He set up Joseph to grow God's chosen nation. And I want to I take a moment and have you turn with me to Psalm 105. Psalm 105 is extremely important to this story. It's something that you need to maybe try to remember. That when you read the story of Joseph, Psalm 105 is a commentary And in Psalm 105, we get a rare glimpse into the inner workings of God's plan, of of why he's doing what he's doing. Look with me at verse 16. Psalm 105, verse 16. When he, that is God, summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. In other words, Decades before this famine is ever going to come, God, in his sovereign knowledge and in his sovereign working of all events, of all times and all seasons, he sends Joseph on ahead because Joseph would be the one to to be the, the savior of not only Egypt, but of his own family. 
Verse 18, his feet were hurt with feathers. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. And this is exactly in line with how the book of Exodus opens. Now there arose a new pharaoh, a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Exactly like verse 25, deal craftily with his servants. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. In other words, as slaves... There was nothing else to do except multiply. And they just got bigger and bigger and bigger. God set up Joseph to grow God's chosen nation. There's a seventh benefit. It gets even bigger. God set up Joseph to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. God set up Joseph to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, to fulfill God's promise to Abraham, or at least a part of it. Hundreds of years earlier to Joseph's great-grandfather, God had promised in Genesis 15, beginning in verse 13, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, afterwards they come out with great possessions. Look again at Psalm 105, verse 26. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke, and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the first fruits of all their strength, then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. And Joseph himself knew prophetically, ultimately, that it was his purpose to help set up God's nation to return home, to go to the promised land. Hebrews 11.22 says that by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. And when Israel left Egypt, what did they take with them? They, take, they took the remains of Joseph and taking him home. One more benefit. This is bigger than any of them. God set up Joseph to be part of bringing you to saving faith in Christ. He 
He set up Joseph to be part of bringing you to saving faith in Christ. Follow my progression here. Without Joseph, Israel never comes to Egypt. Without Egypt, Israel dies as a 70-member family in a horrible famine. Without the famine, Israel isn't put in the land of Goshen. Without Goshen, Israel doesn't start multiplying. Without multiplying, the new Pharaoh doesn't get nervous and enslave Israel. Without centuries of slavery, Israel doesn't grow into a nation of millions. Without a nation of millions, Israel doesn't conquer Canaan and Israel just ceases to exist. And without a nation, without Israel conquering these nations, the tribe of Judah will cease to exist. It doesn't survive. Without the tribe of Judah, there is no Jesus Christ. With no Jesus, there is no salvation for you and for me. But God allowed a 17-year-old kid named Joseph to run his mouth to his brothers so that the covenant that God made with his great-grandfather that through Abraham's family, all the nations of the earth would be blessed so that that covenant would be fulfilled. Now, that's not to say that God is going to use you so directly to bring about his entire redemptive plan. Don't look in the mirror and get too excited about that. But listen, no time of waiting on the Lord is purposeless. There are always reasons. There are always benefits. There are just reasons that are too far beyond you. It would stagger your mind if God tried to explain this to you now. And so what do you do now? Just be a blessing now. Just be a blessing now. You know, one famous verse that's taken completely out of context is Deuteronomy 29, 29, that the secret things belong to the Lord. That when we don't understand the Bible passage, we just say, oh, well, the secret things belong to the Lord. You know what that verse is in context? God has just predicted prophetically to Israel all of the glories that I'm going to give you in the promised land. You're going to blow it and you're going to be taken out. But you know what I want you to do? I want you to just obey me now. I want you to live your life faithfully as husbands, as wives, as children. I want you to honor the Lord. I want you to perform the sacrifices. I want you to obey the law. Don't worry about what's coming down the road. Why? The secret things belong to the Lord. Let that be his purview. One last little thing. Ladies, you'll like this one. Did you notice the theme of clothing in Joseph's life? His coat of authority was used to lie to Jacob, and it was taken from him. His garment of authority as a slave was used to lie to Potiphar. That was taken from him. His new change of clothes in Genesis 41 to tell the truth to Pharaoh, that was given to him. And in Genesis 41, 42, his garments of fine linen as vizier of Egypt were given to him. And that matches exactly with the four times in chapter 39 that that chapter affirms the Lord was with Joseph. So whether you're wearing the garments of humility or the garments of exaltation, be a blessing now, and you will never go wrong with that. And that will help you wait on the Lord. Our Father, it's my hope that those who are here and those who are listening by podcast or online that is there in the time of striving and waiting and wondering how long, O oh Lord, perhaps wondering the injustices that are happening, where there are trials that don't have a, a 
known quantifiable ending. It is our prayer, Lord, that they would be a blessing now, that they would settle in to whatever time period they have. Joseph didn't know when or if he would ever be released from prison, and yet he served well. He was faithful. I pray, Lord, that you would keep us from self-importance, that you would keep us from constantly looking over the fence to something better, but to just be a blessing where we are, to just bloom where we're planted, Lord. You are the great gardener, and you plant us where you would have us to be, and our job is to bloom, to be faithful. I pray that that would be the case, and I pray that there would be also that wonderful benefit of as we joyfully be a blessing to others, to the situations around us, Lord, that you would remove the hopelessness and the despair that so often the company is waiting on you. And I pray, Lord, that every person who is waiting on you right now would find peace and contentment and joy such that they could say, I am okay being where I am for as long as the Lord has me here. And then your work in our lives will have been completed, will have been accomplished. And we thank you and we love you. It is in Christ's name we pray.